Hello, welcome to In Conversation with the podcast for Lancet Neurology. It's March 2022. I'm Gavin Cleaver, and I'm joined today by Professor John Collins, who's Director of the Medical Research Council Prion Unit at UCL. And he's the author of a paper in our new issue on treatment for CJD, or Creutzfeldt-Jakob disease. CJD is, of course, a devastating disease for which there's currently no treatment. Professor Collins, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. So your paper reports the outcomes of six patients with CJD who were given this new antibody, PRN100. What is PRN and how is it developed? Okay, so PRN100 is a humanized monoclonal antibody. Um, the prion diseases are all associated with, of course, with prions, these proteinaceous infectious particles. Our immune system doesn't recognize these as being foreign. They're comprised of misfolded forms of our own proteins. So uh, we don't generate a normal antibody response to them. Um, we understand a lot about the pathogenesis of these diseases now and that the normal cellular prion protein, a normal cellular constituent, is absolutely crucial to them. Uh, if you remove this protein from mice, for example, you can completely stop the disease. So we set about um, generating antibodies um, in the laboratory, which could potentially be used as treatments of the disease in humans. And uh, the best one that we developed um, became PRM100, which is a fully humanized version of, of the best of the mouse antibodies that we produced in the laboratory. So this, this drug was given under a specials license, right, rather than as part of a clinical trial. What does that mean? And, I, you know, it, it might seem obvious, but why we, maybe you could explain why you weren't able to do a conventional placebo-controlled trial in this case. Well, we looked at a number of ways of funding um, a formal trial um, with, with this drug and uh, were unsuccessful in getting the sort of level of funding that we needed. And um, uh, we looked at a number of sources and University College Hospital um, explored providing the drug under a so-called specials exemption, which enabled us to give it to a small number of patients. And the specials exemption uh, allows um, healthcare professionals to treat an individual patient with an unlicensed drug when it meets their special clinical needs, uh, which can't be met by a licensed uh, medical product. So it allows a doctor to, to prescribe the drug in, a, in those special circumstances. But, but what we've done here is, is, is given patients the drug essentially as an, as an NHS treatment rather than as part of a regulated clinical trial. So how did you go about investigating the effects of PRN100 in, in, your, in your patients? Well, the drug was given to, um, to six patients and um, it was given intravenously. Of course, this was the first time this drug had been given to humans. Uh, monoclonal antibodies can be associated with significant side effects, so we proceeded very cautiously. Uh, the hospital set up uh, an oversight committee uh, which monitored the whole uh, process. And um, we didn't know, of course, at the time whether giving the drug intravenously would, be, would get sufficient levels of the drug into the brain, but we wanted to try that first. Um, if that hadn't been successful, we were geared up to give the drug directly into the fluid-filled spaces of the brain by so-called intracerebroventricular infusion. But it turned out that wasn't necessary. Uh, we did get sufficient levels in by intravenous administration. Um, and importantly, we saw no evidence of toxicity, either acute toxicity or longer-term toxicity. And you know, one patient was treated for, um, for over eight months, for example, without any, any signs of toxicity. So that was all... Um, all very positive uh, from that. And um, the patients were carefully monitored um, throughout treatment. Um, 
to see the rates of change in, in neurological and cognitive features. We, we have a set of uh, specialised rating scales, um, the MRC um, Prahn disease rating scale, motor scale and cognitive scales. Uh, we applied to the patients throughout their treatment to monitor changes in their neurological uh, function. And of course, we also monitored the levels of drug, uh, both in their blood and in their cerebrospinal fluid. Um, because we were proceeding so cautiously, um, the target level of drug we wanted to get into the CSF was, was 50 nanomolar. Um, and it took an average of 47 days to reach that level, which is a long time in CJD, which of course is a very rapidly progressive disease. Um, and I think uh, going on to do future studies, we'd want to ramp up the dose much more rapidly, but clearly we were proceeding cautiously because we didn't know whether we might run into significant side effects. Of course. So what were your main clinical findings then in the trial? Well, I said the, the, the important things were that we saw no evidence of toxicity, um, that uh, good levels of the drug um, got into the CSF. We were able to reach the target concentrations in four out of the six of the patients. With, with, with a treatment group uh, this small, um, we were never likely to show statistically significant effects on clinical decline. The, the only way we could really conclude that the drug was really working to, to stop the disease process would be if one or more patients, um, their, their neurological decline completely halted, or indeed if there was an improvement, because we've never seen that before in CJD. Mm. Um, so that would be, even in a single patient, that would have been highly significant. We didn't see that. All the patients continued to neurologically decline, unfortunately. But in three of the four patients in which we did reach the target CSF concentration, while they were at that target concentration, we did see an apparent uh, levelling off of the, of the decline. And um, I think that was, that was very encouraging to us, that the, the decline appeared to stabilise while they were at the target levels of the drug. Yeah, that's very interesting. So what did you find in the neuropathological investigations? Okay, well, two, two of the patients um, consented to autopsy. Um, one of those patients had only actually had a single effective dose. They'd declined very rapidly. Um, and so th there was limited interpretation from, from that autopsy. One patient, the other patient had been on the drug for quite s some months. And we saw remarkable changes in the brain, actually, in comparison with untreated with untreated um, patients. You know, the patterns of disease-associated prion protein um, differed very markedly from untreated patients. And in particular, there was a, a striking attenuation of the abnormal prion protein staining in, in parietal and occipital cortex, um, an altered distribution in subventricular areas. And also, there was deposition of abnormal prion protein uh, in blood vessels. So it clearly indicated the drug was, was engaging target and altering the neuropathology. And indeed, it looked as though it was helping clear the abnormal prime proteins from the brain. So that was really a very encouraging finding. And even in the patient who'd had just one single uh, uh, of the therapeutic doses of the drug, we saw some changes in, in staining with respect to prime protein in the brain. So even that single dose seemed to be having an effect. <clears throat> It seems promising then. What are some of the limitations beyond obviously such a small patient group? Well, as, as you say, it's, it's a small group. We were only able to treat six patients because that's all the drug we had. We had a single batch of drug and we treated patients until we ran out. Um, and uh, we couldn't define even the number in advance because we didn't know how long people were going to, 
to um, survive on the drug, but it ended up uh, we're treating six patients. But that's obviously a very small number to get uh, to get data from. Um, the other limitations are that the patients, um, because we were treating patients intentionally who had established CJD, there was no doubt about the diagnosis, and and we chose to treat patients with. The, the rapidly progressive form of, of of the disease, they were significantly affected neurologically, of course, at the time of treatment, and uh, and at that stage, probably there is irreversible damage to the brain, yeah. um, and also um, neurodegenerative processes, cells dying in the brain, which are them, themselves releasing toxic substances, which cause cell death. So you get a sort of secondary neurodegenerative process, which is probably irreversible, even if you completely stop the prion disease. So that's another limitation, the sort of stage at which we inevitably had to treat. And also this cautious dose escalation we did, because we didn't know about drug safety at, at, at this point. We escalated the drug up to the therapeutic levels very slowly, taking an average of 47 days to reach the target, which is a long time for these patients. So obviously for for, for the next stage of uh, uh, what we would want to do is to enrol patients at a much earlier stage um, and ramp up the drug uh, to reach the therapeutic, what we think of the therapeutic levels in the CSF in two or three days, not, not in, um, you know, six weeks. Uh, and giving us much more opportunity, I think, to see beneficial effects for the patients. So it sounds promising, of course, even though these are early days. Uh, do you feel positive about the future? And what are some of the next steps, do you think? Yeah, we feel very positive. I mean, it's taken a long time to get to this point. We've been doing this for the, the, the MRC prime unit was set up to do this, um, you know, in the wake of the BSC crisis. Uh, it's been a long haul, as it always is, to, you know, working out the pathogenesis of a disease and what the right therapeutic target is and then developing a biopharmaceutical uh, the MRC unit's done this essentially itself, you know, and um, so the unit's, I think, very excited at having got to this stage. Uh, the next step, I think, is to do a, a formal phase two trial in a sufficient number of patients that we can get clear data on efficacy. And our power calculations suggest we can do this with 50 patients. Um, and we want to recruit them at the earliest clinical stage and ramp up the drug to the therapeutic levels very quickly intravenously. But I think that's that's really the exciting thing we want to do now that we know the drug is essentially safe uh, from our treatment of, of six patients uh, and we know about the dosing regime. I think we can now do, I hope, a, a, a pivotal study to uh, assess efficacy. Do you think there are any wider implications of this beyond prion diseases? Um, there are. I mean, but w with prion diseases, it's th the fact that we're targeting the cellular prion protein itself, which is is the obligate substrate for all prion strains. So this drug wouldn't just be useful for CJD. It should treat all known prion diseases because what you're doing is removing the prion protein, which is essential for the whole disease process. So it has wide use there. And I think one of the things we're most excited about, actually, is being able to prevent onset of the disease, onset of prion disease, because with sporadic CJD, which occurs out of the blue, we only know people have got that, of course, when they present to a doctor with neurological yeah. symptoms. But 15% of the prion diseases we see actually run in families and are due to a fault in the a mutation in the prion protein gene. And many of these people come forward for pre-symptomatic genetic testing and we follow them long term. 
And indeed, we have biomarkers now that can tell us when the disease process may be starting. And so the aim would be um, in those individuals, ultimately, to be able to prevent onset of the disease altogether by giving them uh, PRM100 uh, at intervals uh, and um, preventing the disease actually appearing at all. There are also quite a lot of people who've been accidentally exposed to prions through medical and surgical procedures. Uh, people uh, who've received pituitary growth hormones as children, for example, that have been contaminated with CJD or or variant CJD contaminated blood and blood products. And again, uh, such individuals, um, if they were shown to be infected, we could in principle prevent the disease occurring. And, and of course, the drug's most likely to work, of course, at that stage uh, before extensive neurological damage has, has occurred. So we're very excited about those applications. I think in terms of wider implications, if we are successful in stopping a neurogenitive process by treating um, uh, prion disease early and aggressively with, with this monoclonal antibody, I think we can learn quite a lot about the brain's ability to recover from neurogenitive processes. You know, if a patient has a stroke, we have a good idea as neurologists what sort of residual function you might have, what, what, what effect rehabilitation might have. No one's ever stopped a neurogenitive process in humans. And so we might learn an awful lot, actually, once we can do that, which will be relevant to much commoner diseases like Alzheimer's disease, for example. What capacity is there for, for the brain to, to recover from these sort of processes? And then there's another aspect in which this, this might be uh, of use in, in that it turns out quite separately from the disease processes of prion disease itself, that the cellular prion protein appears to play a role in toxic signaling in Alzheimer's disease. And, and uh, toxic um, uh, A-beta species, which play a part in Alzheimer's disease, do bind to the cellular prion protein uh, and cause uh, synaptotoxic effects. And we showed in an animal model several years ago that those effects could be blocked using PRM100 uh, intravenously, actually. So it's also conceivable through a quite different mechanism that this drug might have a role in Alzheimer's disease too. But that's that's very much for the future. Obviously, the unit's focusing for the moment on, on treatment of CJD and other prion diseases. Well, it's very exciting. It's very interesting. And it, it's been really it's been really interesting to hear about it. But And hopefully, you know, we'll, we'll hear a lot about it in the years to come as well. So, Professor John Collins, thanks so much for, for joining me today on the podcast. Pleasure. Thank you very much. And thanks to our listeners for tuning in. We'll see you again in a month's time for another In Conversation with The Lancet Neurology.